Precious Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we've had of studying and understanding these themes, very important themes. And yesterday, we last two days, three days, we've set a strong foundation for um, our studies. And now I pray, Lord, you'll continue to lead and guide our thoughts as we continue down that track today. And we praise you and thank you, Lord. We ask your special blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what was the theme of yesterday? If you're, if you're not sure, it's on the screen. Giving, Giving our what? Our heart to God. And we find that the entire foundation, the entire basis of all that God did through Daniel tracks all the way back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. And that word, Daniel what? Purposed in his heart. And many of us, have felt like and thought that that word literally meant that he just kind of stood himself up straight and just dug in his heels and tightened his belt, gritted his teeth, and he said, whatever they bring at me, I'm just going to block it, right? And in a sense, certainly Daniel had to make a sober decision, and so he exercised his will, correct? He exercised his will to say, these things I know they're going to bring at me, and these things I'm going to refuse. But Daniel, just like the rest of us, really had no power or strength of himself to do them, but he had to uh, totally and completely surrender the heart to who? To God. And when he did that, God gave him the ability and the strength and the wisdom to resist the temptations that the enemy was bringing to him. We also saw that um, Daniel was carried to Babylon, so he was surrounded by Babylonian things, wasn't he? He was given a Babylonian name. He was given a, by the way, I can't remember, now I don't have it with me, what that name meant. I forget what it means, but um, it, it was a servant of one of the gods. And, um, and so he was given that name. His friends were given a name. They were given new clothes, a, a Babylonian education, they were given Babylonian food. They were given all these things to try to change their identity, aren't they? So Daniel was essentially surrounded and saturated with Babylon, correct? And we saw that today, it's the same case for us, isn't it? That today we are surrounded by uh, this concept of Babylon all around us from, from food to clothing to entertainment to all these things. And if it was possible for Daniel to have Babylon around him, but not Babylon in him, is it possible for us to do the same thing today? What do you think? How many believe that to be true today? And so we saw that these stories in the book of Daniel are not just stories, but they're actual uh, circumstances and situations that God's people will find themselves in before Jesus comes again, yes? And um, you remember in chapter 3, we talked briefly, and we'll talk more about it today, but uh, in chapter 3, you have that image that's set up, which is a, a representation of, in a sense, the mark of the beast, a forced, coerced, false worship with a death decree, if you don't do it, right? And then we find the same thing in Revelation 13, but before Revelation 13 comes there is this overflooding of ungodliness, correct? And that's what we find in Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
Um, and that's where we find ourselves today, isn't it? We are standing on the brink of the time when the mark of the beast will be issued. And I believe, <coughs> friends, that it's obviously, it's closer than it's, <coughs> excuse me, it's closer than it's ever been before, but it is most certainly the case that our world and our nation are being conditioned to prepare the people of the earth to receive that thing. And uh, there's no doubt about it from, you know, just in my estimation, the food that people are eating, the entertainment that they're watching, the television programs, it's j everything is specifically designed to basically make our minds mush so that we just fall into line. I mean, the, the dependency upon, upon earthly powers, governments, and so forth, the way that we do, um, everybody's looking to uh, the government to save them, and indeed the government's going to step in and make that attempt, aren't they? And so everything is being pushed towards that direction, but God's people are called to stand how? Stand apart, aren't they? God's people are called to stand in a different direction. God's people are called to depend upon Him and not upon ourselves, not upon anything else, not anything externally. And that which is external does not have to become what's internal for us. But the only way is if Christ is inside, yes? If Christ is living within, the living Christ is living within our hearts, that's the only way to keep the floodwaters of Babylon from coming in. How many of you find that to be true? Yes? So real quickly, I just want to um, review this. And I'm gonna, we read it yesterday, but I want to read it again. It says here, what does it mean to purpose something in your heart? It means to give self over to a task, situation, or idea. And the word purpose in the Hebrew, one of the words is to give. And so to say that Daniel purposed is to say that Daniel gave his heart to God. Throughout the book of Daniel, we find the same decision being made again and again. Every time Daniel came in conflict with the conflict, he had to make the same decision to do what? Surrender his heart to God. Are you guys asleep? Are you awake? He always had to make that decision over and over again, didn't he? To give his heart to God. He never saw the conflict for conflict's sake. You know, there's people out there that are all, always into these conspiracy theories and they're stocking up food and all this kind of thing. And I had this guy once, he was a student of mine in a course, and he was always trying to tell me about these conspiracy theories. And I said, brother, let me put it to you this way. Let's suppose that everything you're telling me, I mean, he would have every kind of conspiracy theory I've ever heard of. Let's suppose that every one of them that you're telling me is absolutely true, and there's even many more beyond what you already know. And he, and he got big. He was like, yeah, he, now, now I'm getting somewhere with this guy, right? And I said, what are you going to be able to do about any of it? And he just stopped, and he thought for a minute, and he said, well, I guess nothing. And I said, your time is much better invested in drawing close to Christ and telling others about Him. And you know, he went home that day and he came back and he said, I prayed about that. And he said, you're right. And he says, I'm, I'm going to get rid of all this stuff. And so we're not, we're not talking, we're not worried, we're not putting our time and energy into focusing on those things, are we? But we're thinking about how can we our hearts be drawn out more to the Savior. 
Because it's only, how can we have more of Christ in our lives and in our hearts? How can we know His truth? How can we prepare ourselves by understanding His Word more so that when the crisis comes, we'll be ready? And if we're giving our hearts to God today and the issues that we're facing, then we're going to be able to very easily give our hearts to Him when the crisis comes. Yes or no? Now, a verse I just thought about quickly, and this is not my normal Bible. This is my devotional Bible. And I left my, I left my water bottle, my lemon water. I left my preaching bottle. And my, I'm doing a strong tirade recording today, one of the lessons I told you about the other day. I'm doing that. I left all three of those things in my camper. Can you believe that? All right, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. And we know this verse, very, very popular verse that we quote all the time. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. I want you to notice this. This goes along with what I've been mentioning here. It says, and they have conquered, this is the English Standard Version, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And notice the second half. And they loved not their lives till what? Till death. Now, when we read that text, what do you think that it means? Think about it. I mean, what, is it, what do we always say it means? That they were willing to what? Willing to die for Jesus. Right? And I'm not going to say it doesn't mean that. But, I'm not, but what I am going to say is that it doesn't mostly mean that. If you notice and you look carefully at how it's worded, it says... They loved not their lives, what? Till death. What does that mean? It means until the time that death came, they lived what kind of a life? A selfless, Christ-like life. And so the point is this. If you spend your entire life truly living for Jesus... You will never have a hesitation about dying for him. Does that make sense? I remember, I remember the Battle of Gettysburg, and I, I'm a history fan. I was reading a book about it. And how many of you ever saw? How many of you ever saw the movie Gettysburg? Ever see the movie? It was made in like the 90s, and it shows them at Pickett's Charge on the third day. And it shows this big battle and like they, they get all the way up to the fence and they lots of hand-to-hand combat and all this kind of thing. And there's like several thousand Confederate soldiers that reach the federal lines. Well, the reality is that the actual battle, that didn't really happen. And um, there were only a handful of people that actually made it to the, to the line and the story goes that there was a Union soldier that reached his hand out across the line and pulled the con- a Confederate over, and he said, come unto the side of the Lord. Very interesting. And of course, he became a prisoner, but that's what he said to him. And that thought came to me when it, you think about the devil and the fence, that when we approach the fence and sit there, he's got somebody there always saying, come on over to the other side, right? And we don't want to be on that side of the fence. So Revelation 12, 11, that 
You'll never have a problem dying for Christ if you've really lived for Him. But you will never die for Him until you've lived for Him, and you will never live for Him until you've died to self. Correct? And so that's the only way to truly live for Christ is to die to self. And when we die to self, when we live for Christ, we'll have no problem dying for Christ because He died for us. Amen? And, um, but if we're not living our lives day to day in death to self and life to Christ, then we will hesitate when any type of a crisis comes, right? Whether it's life-threatening or not, whether it's just earth-threatening, we'll, we won't hesitate, or we will hesitate. Daniel always chose God because Daniel had given him his heart. We will see this key in his, in his success. He was a man of faith. I want to read this again as well. Had Daniel so desired, he might have found in his surroundings a plausible excuse for departing from strictly temperate habits. He might have argued that, dependent as he was on the king's favor and subject of his power, there was no other course for him to pursue than to eat of the king's food and drink of his wine. For should he adhere to the divine teaching, he would offend the king and probably lose his position and his life. Should he disregard the commandment of the Lord, he would retain the favor of the king and secure for himself intellectual advantages and worldly, flattering worldly prospects. You and I are faced with that issue every single day. You realize that? In the workplace, there's always temptations amongst co-workers or the, the, the company wants us to, to compromise a certain thing. And uh, we're always having that temptation. I told you the story about the other day about the person with the shrimp. Remember that? And uh, we're always facing these kinds of things. And when we read these stories, we have to realize that this whole thing is being repeated. Now, we might not be in the king's court, but friends, every one of us have a circle of influence that God is calling us to influence for Him. Yes? But Daniel did not hesitate. Why did he not hesitate? Because he... Gave his heart to God. The approval of God was dearer to him than the favor of the most earthly, powerful earthly potentate. Potentate. I can never say that word. King. <laughs> say it again. Potentate. Potentate. Thank you. Dearer than life itself, he determined to stand firm. Tomorrow I would not be able to say it again. <laughs> he determined to stand firm in his integrity, let the result be what it might. He purposed or gave his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. And this, in this resolve, he was supported by his three companions. How many can say amen? amen? How many times do you suppose that Daniel was giving his heart to God throughout his time in Babylon? Many times a day, yes? And that is a super huge key. Um, I'm going to skip that one. So let's go on. Actually, before we go on to Daniel 2, I wanted to bring out another point from Daniel 1, and then we'll go on to Daniel 2. But go with me to Daniel 1. And I, I meant to bring this out yesterday. We ran out of time, and then I, was, I forgot about bringing it out today, and I got an email from David reminding me about it, actually. So I appreciate that email, brother. And uh, Daniel chapter 1, and we know the story, but I want to make a very important point. All right, let's see. This is not my preaching Bible, so let me find it here. Daniel 1, 8. Daniel 
purpose that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with a king. So Daniel, when Daniel stepped out in faith and he purposed in his heart to follow God, what, did that, what was God then able to do for Daniel? He gave him favor with who? With, with, with the chief of the eunuchs, right? And so there was something about Daniel that was obviously different, and the chief of the eunuchs recognized that. Now, when you think about it, I don't know if, if the, in this particular unit of prisoners, there were other prisoners of other nations, but it was likely that the group of prisoners that this guy was in charge over were who? They're all Hebrews, right? And so all the Hebrews should have had the same response as who? As Daniel. But obviously, there was a what? There was a distinction between them. And probably the reason for that was that the reason they were there in the first place was because the whole nation had become apostate, right? And there were only a handful or a remnant of people that were faithful in the whole nation. And Daniel's family and his three friends would have been among those people, correct? So the rest of the boys were probably already worshiping Baal. So when they came home to Babylon, or when they came to Babylon, it was like coming home. Now I'm saying that because these are God's people that are supposed to be all representing Him in the same form. In fact, imagine if the entire lot of prisoners had acted and responded like Daniel. I mean, the king would have been blown away even more so, wouldn't he? But here's a contrast. Now, you can imagine that Daniel was getting pressure from the, other, from, from the Babylonians, something along this form. Look at your friends. Your friends worship the same God as you do. And look, they're eating the king's food. Have you ever had pressure like that? Your friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are all bowing down and worshiping the golden image. Like the king said, they're being good, obedient subjects to the king. Why aren't you? See, here's what happens when we as God's people compromise the truth that God has for us. It puts pressure on the others. Are you with me? That are striving to be faithful. How many of you have been in this situation before? Maybe you have a friend that uh, compromises and they say to you, well, your friend does it. Why don't you do it? Right? I mean, Ben, uh, not Ben Carson, but um, Desmond Doss had that issue. He said, well, there are other Adventists in the army bearing arms. What's the matter with you? Right? And so this is why it's so important 
to not be willing to compromise, to give our hearts to Christ so we don't compromise, because not only can we mar the, um, the uh, cause of God, but we're also putting a difficulty and a trouble on our fellow brothers and sisters. Yes or no? Are you with me? Okay. So Daniel uh, is here with the chief eunuchs. But because Daniel was obedient to God rather than the king, God was able to give him favor. So Daniel, because he gives his heart to God, he steps out in faith to make that request, doesn't he? Are you with me? So when Daniel steps out in faith, his influence, because he's been loyal to Christ, spreads and flows over to the Babylonian eunuch that's caring for him. And it causes the Babylonian eunuch to also step out in what? Faith. Because Daniel says, test us for how long? Test us for 10 days and then see what happens after 10 days, right? And so he was willing to also step out in faith at a risk to himself because his love and his favor for Daniel was so great because Daniel was willing to distinguish himself by giving his heart fully to Christ. I'm telling you, when you fully surrender your life to God, you will have an influence over other people. You may not think so. You may think, well, people don't value religion. But I'm telling you, if, if you will follow the principles of Christ fully in your life, you will begin to have influence over people. And look, here you have Daniel now exercising an authority that God has given him over this man. The man who has authority over him, now Daniel has authority over. Now it's a very subtle, sweet authority, understand? It's a, it's a, it's a very subtle thing, but he's doing it. How many find that to be amazing? And then when he's, the man steps out in faith, the chief of the eunuchs, you know the rest of the story, right? They were brought in. And so when we are willing to do that, step out, God will use it as an influence over others to cause them to also step out in faith to follow Him. And what kind of a witness do you think that that was? Amen? And because Daniel was faithful, God gave him the prophetic gift following that. And Daniel, because of... Now don't miss this. Daniel... Because of giving his heart to God one day and one moment and making a decision about one meal in his life, put him in a position where God could use him to influence an entire empire for him. So are the small things of life important? What do you say? Are they? What do you think? Is it important in our relationship with God? Because it impacts our relationships with others, doesn't it? I remember a story quickly about a man who was a new preacher in town. He's a new pastor. And he was leaving his church office and he got on the bus. It was late in the evening and he gave the man, the bus driver, the money. And the bus driver gave him back his change. And the pastor went and sat down as he but started to stick in his pocket. He felt impressed to look at it. And when he looked, the bus driver had given him 10 cents too much. And, you know, our, our natural course would just 
tell us to just, ah, eh, that's a dime, don't worry about it. It's too much trouble to go up there and tell the man, and he'll, pro he'll probably tell me to keep it anyways, right? I mean, that's normally what happens. I've, I've, I've kept a thing for two weeks that I got at Walmart, and I went back to try to give it back, and they were like, ah, you know, we don't want it. And, and you know, that's just often to happen that way. So, but he felt impressed, to be honest. And so when the bus stopped at his place, he was getting off, and he gave the driver the dime back. And the driver said to him, uh, he said, or, or, or the pastor said to the driver, I gave, you gave me 10 cents too much. And the driver said, yes, I know. And he was kind of shocked. And he says, he says, aren't you the new preacher in town? <laughs> and he says, oh, yes, sir, I am. And he says, well, he says, you know, my wife and I used to go to church together for many years. And uh, but then life kind of got in the way and our relationship with God began to suffer. And we got caught up in, you know, properties and vacations and soccer and all these different things. And it just kind of taken, took us away. But two weeks ago, my wife died. And it made me wake up to the fact of my need for God and how all those years we missed out on Him. And he says, and I thought you were the new preacher, he says, but before I come to your church, I wanted to see what kind of a man you were. <laughs> and he says, I'll be at your church this weekend. And the young man greeted him and he stepped off the bus and as the bus drove away he had to there was a stoplight or something there he had to grab a hold of the pole because his knees were giving out and he actually fell down to his knees and he said dear god please forgive me i almost sold your son for a dime do the small things matter friends they matter well, let's go on to daniel chapter 2 and um I'm not going to spend too much time on this chapter, but I wanted to make one point because once we are giving our hearts to God, we must constantly keep recommitting our hearts to God. Amen? And we must keep that connection connected, right? And so we have to keep connected to God, and the way we keep connected to God is through how? Through prayer, right? And everybody knows Daniel chapter 2, and so I'm not going to read through the story too much, but I want to come, I want you to see just a couple of things here. We know the story that King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He does, he, the dream troubles him. He wakes up. He doesn't remember the dream. And he has it, uh, as it seems from the passage, many times. Finally, he calls in his astrologers and his sorcerers and all this, and he asks them to tell him the dream. They can't tell him the dream. They go back and forth for a while. He gets angry. He orders them to die. And, um, and all the wise men, because the king is so frustrated, the king has depression. And he has anger issues. I almost wonder if he wasn't bipolar. And um, <clears throat> he's just always like this, kind of manic, up and down. And, um, and so the king, it's very interesting, the king was putting his trust in these men, and they failed him. But Daniel was putting his trust in God, and God answered him. Yes? And um, I think of this text here, where it says, verse 10, 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so basically, these guys have been on his payroll forever, and they finally confessed that they had been, um, you know, basically... Uh, what's the word? Ripping him off all these years, right? They'd been receiving a salary of some kind, probably a big one. And now when put to the test, they did all these tricks all this time. But now when put to the test, they basically said this, God doesn't talk to us. We don't know Him. Right? So he gives the decree. Daniel goes in. He asks for time and he grants him till sunrise. And so these guys were preying on the king, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, correct? But Daniel prayed for the king, P-R-A-Y, correct? And I find it interesting that when Daniel gathers his three friends, verse 20, and they... No, I'm sorry, verse 17. He went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that his, Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery, so obviously they prayed, right? They spent a time in prayer. And then it says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So what was Daniel doing after he prayed? He went to bed. He was at peace. Amen? Do you think that those guys were at peace? They were probably making plans to escape, right? And so Daniel wakes up after the vision, and he says, um, verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, removes kings, and set up kings, and he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so Daniel didn't really do anything different than what he had always done, correct? Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 says that Daniel would always open the window how many times a day? Three. Three times a day, and he would pray towards Jerusalem. And he was doing the same thing he'd always done. And so Daniel didn't wait until a crisis came to go to God in prayer, did he? How many of us do that today? Daniel had a regular, consistent prayer life which allowed him in a crisis to not panic, correct? If, if we're not maintaining a, a, that connecting relationship with God, then when we come to a crisis, we will panic, right? But if we have seen God work in our lives day by day in the small things, because our hearts have been connected with Him through giving our hearts to Him and connecting with Him each day, then when it comes to the big things, it's just going to be one more thing that God's going to do for me, right? Does that make sense? And that's what allowed Daniel to go to sleep at night. And so 
if you, I'm not, we're not going to go there, but you can just mark it down in your notes. There in Daniel chapter 9, you find the prayer of Daniel. How many of you have read that prayer, right? And uh, there's several elements in that prayer which are um, adoration, which we find here in this, in this prayer. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He's adoring God, right? He's, he's worshiping Him. You find adoration, you find confession, um, you find uh, thanksgiving, and you find supplication. And so in this chapter 2, you also find all those things, right? I'm sure before they asked God to give them the vision, they were confessing any sins that they knew about, correct? And so then he also gives thanksgiving. Um, there towards the end, he says, I give thanks and praise in verse 23. So that's happening. Now, I'm going to show you a beautiful way in which we can stay connected to God once we've given our hearts to God. Okay. Now, my friend, who actually is the author of these questions, I tweaked them a little bit so I can say I'm a co-author, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. The Lord gets the credit. There's nothing original with the Lord. Amen? Nothing new under the sun. So anything we give, we get, is probably something God has given someone else, and there's no need for us to think we're smarter than anyone else. Amen? But my friend, when he was a young man, was running from God, not giving his heart to God every day, running away from Him, and uh, he went to this camp, and he said that there was this guy who was always looking at him and watching him, and he would just give him these weird looks like this. And he would go to, he'd be walking through camp, and there standing at the end of the building would be this guy, and he would just look at him like this. And he would go to the meal table, right? He would go get his food. And as he was dipping his food out, he would look up, and on the other side of the line, there was this guy, and he'd be going like this. He would get to the lunch table at a different meal, a different day, and he'd go, and he'd just go and plop up and plop his food down. He'd look up, and there'd be that guy again, right? And he's just looking at him. And he's like, why does this guy keep bothering me? You know, why is he looking at me like this? And so he's walking through the woods one day, and all of a sudden this guy jumps out of the bushes, literally. And he says to him, you don't know how to pray, do you? And my friend says, I don't pray at all. Don't bother me. And the other guy says, I want you to come to my cabin tonight at 7 o'clock and I'm going to teach you how to pray. And my friend was like, I don't want to come to your cabin. Leave me alone. But all day his mind was like just convicted. You need to go to this guy's cabin. So he went to this guy's cabin and this guy was there and he had his Bible open and he taught him how to pray. Amen? And he used these five questions to teach him how to pray. Now, we often, when we think about praying, we often think about telling God all kinds of stuff he already knows, right? And I had one lady tell me, I had a pastor's wife tell me one time, I don't, I don't pray. I said, well, what do you mean you don't pray? I don't pray. Why should I pray to God when he already knows what I'm thinking? All I need to do is think about things. I don't need to pray. And I thought about that and I said, well, probably because it's more for you than for him. But he wants you to pray and he wants you to commune with him. And we always think about telling God stuff that he already knows. But have we ever thought about asking God questions and letting him speak to our hearts? Are you with me? 
So check this out. These are the elements of these questions can be found from both the prayer of Daniel chapter 2 and the prayer of Daniel chapter 9. Okay? And it models the Acts prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. But here are some questions that we can ask God. Number one, what is, what is it or what do I have to be what? Thankful for. All the time in the writings of Ellen White and in the Bible, you find that we're told to give thanksgiving more than just for your meal each day, right? And how many of you keep a journal or some kind of thing of things you're thankful for, right? Do you do that? Amen. Amen. And I think that if we were willing to do that more, our hearts would shift on in other ways that would cause us to have a greater and a deeper appreciation for the small things even that God does for us, right? So here's what I often do. I'll ask myself, or I'll ask God rather in, the, in my prayer time, what do I have to be thankful for? And I just let God impress me with whatever it is. And I just spend some time in quiet. And I just listen for His voice whispering into my heart, yes? And things will start coming to my mind. I write them down, okay? Number two... What's coming between me and you, God? Isn't that a great question to ask God? What's coming between our relationship, God? What's coming between us? In other words, that, what, 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 what is that describing? What's the word that, that we would use for that? C. What is it? Confession. Right? Confession. I mean, what's coming between me and you, God, is what? What, what, what is that? It's sin, Right? So God, what sins are coming between me and you? Rather than me trying to come up with a list myself, why don't I ask God to have the Holy Spirit reveal it to me? Amen? What's coming between me and you? And so, ask God that question in your prayer time, and then spend some time in quiet. You know, the problem with many of us today is we don't like to be quiet. we got to have some kind of noise, don't we? Either that phone chiming or the TV going. we got to have some kind of noise. But God says, you know, I want you to come aside and be with me. Amen? He wants us to be alone with Him and quiet with Him and let His voice speak to our conscience. Yes? Then thirdly, what's coming between me and who? Others. Now, now, would this make up any sin that I would commit? Those two questions? Because the, what, what is sin? Transgression of the law. law. And the Ten Commandments are divided into two categories, right? Love for God, love for men. So what's coming between me and God? What's coming between me and others would encompass the entire what? Ten Commandments, wouldn't it? So any sin I could commit... God could bring to my mind by asking him two questions, yes or no. Are you with me? Third, uh, fourth question is, so once I, once I confess those sins, is God willing to cleanse them from me? What do you think? 1 John 1, 9, God is willing to do what? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Yes? So I ask for that forgiveness and that cleansing. Amen? Once I've confessed those sins, 
you know, it's a good idea to even write them down. And then once you confess them, you can tear them up. Keep a record of the things you're thankful for, but don't keep a record of your sins. Amen? <laughs> tear them up and throw them away once you seek that forgiveness. Number four, what do you want to fill my life today? And what is it that God always wants to fill our life with today? The Holy Spirit, yes, and the fruits of the Spirit. The product of the Holy Spirit living in your life is that you will demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit in your life, correct? Amen? And so I'm wanting God to fill my life with the fruits of the Spirit of God. Was Daniel's life full of the fruits of the Spirit of God, yes or no? Yes, because he trusted in God day by day, moment by moment. Amen? All right. And then the last one, fifthly, what do you want me to do today? Amen? Because the fruit of the Spirit always results in acts in the life, correct? Doing something, correct? The faith of Jesus, righteousness by faith, is a thing that transforms my heart from the inside out, and once it changes me on the inside, it will be reflected on the outside. If there's love in my heart, if God puts His love in my heart, will it shine through on the outside? Yes or no? If He puts patience in my heart, will it shine through on the outside? It'll shine through on the outside, correct? All right, so do you suppose that Daniel was probably asking those kind of questions to God? I mean, I don't know if he was, but it's very highly possible that he was. Three times a day, amen? He was doing those questions in some form or fashion, for sure, because you can find them in both of those chapters, right? All right. Now, this will be great for your devotional life, amen? All right. Notice this from Prophets and Kings. It says, in true success in, in true success in any line of work is not the result of chance or accident or destiny. It is the outworking of God's providences. The reward of faith and discretion of virtue and perseverance. I'm teaching my son about perseverance. And uh, he, he doesn't like to do his chores, and I encourage him in perseverance, right? Fine mental qualities and a high moral tone are not the result of accident. God gives opportunities. Success depends upon the use made of them. While God was working in Daniel and his companions to will and to do of his good pleasure, they were working out their own salvation. Now, it doesn't mean they were saved by works, but they were doing, seeking God continually in the things necessary to have that. Herein is revealed the outworking of the divine principle of what? Cooperation. Without which no true success can be attained. Human effort avails nothing without divine power, and without human endeavor, divine effort is with many of no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. His grace is given to work in us, to will and to do, but never as a substitute for our own effort. What that means is, is you must cooperate with Him. It's not about sitting back and saying, let go and let God. All right? I mean, there's an, element of that to, of, there's an element of truth to that in the sense that, that we have to cease striving. Well, let me just say it this way. When it comes to the concept of salvation, 
being saved by grace through faith. It is not our effort. It is our surrender. Correct? But in the area of Christian growth, there is effort to be made on our part. Does that make sense? And our effort is to be combined with God's strength to attain the higher place that He has for us. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So, so sometimes people... Sometimes people look at this and they think that that's referring to salvation, the free gift of God that covers our sin. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Christian growth and sanctification. Are you with me? And so God combines His power with our, with our, with our effort and He causes us to grow. But it's not talking about being saved. Is everybody clear on that? Does that make sense? Okay. I mean, you think about it. I mean, any type of Christian growth requires effort on our part. Even reading the Bible. You have to open the Bible and actually make an effort to read it before God can do something for you. Does that make sense? Even in prayer, you have to get down on your knees and actually pray before God's going to speak to you, right? Uh, you know, in witnessing, you actually have to take that glow track and hand it to somebody, right? There's always effort with, with patience we have to strive in all that we can do and then call upon God for what we cannot do. Amen? And then God just pulls us higher, higher, and higher. How many can say amen? amen? But when we are sinful human beings in need of a Savior, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, correct? Nothing we can do to save ourselves, but there is effort we can put forth to grow ourselves, correct? All right. As the Lord cooperated with Daniel and his fellows, so he will cooperate with all who strive to do his will. Notice what it says. All who what? All who strive. And by the impartation of his spirit, he will strengthen every true purpose, every noble resolution. Those who walk in the path of obedience will encounter many hindrances. Have you found that to be true? Now, wait a minute. I thought that when I obeyed God, like I shouldn't have any problems. Isn't that the way it was? Well, Jesus obeyed God better than any of you ever will, and He had trouble at every step of His life. The enemy would not leave Him alone. But every, every obstacle, Ellen White says, is a call to prayer. Amen? Those who walk in the path of obedience will encounter many hindrances. Strong, subtle influences may bind them to the world, but the Lord is able to render futile every agency that works for the defeat of His chosen ones. Sometimes God will allow hindrances to come to you and obstacles to come to you. He will actually allow that, like He did with Daniel, just so that you will go to your knees and say, Lord, please clear the way. So that we will actually ask for His power to open the door for us. Does that make sense? How many can say amen? amen? He allows things to happen so that we will call upon Him. If He cleared the path for us every time without any kind of struggle or wrestling, then we wouldn't feel the need for Him. We would view Him as a genie in the bottle who just does everything well for me, right? In His strength, they may overcome every temptation and conquer every difficulty. How many can say Amen. So every difficulty can be overcome as long as we're on our knees pleading with Him. All right, let's go on to Daniel chapter 3. Believe, I call this believing the Word will do what it says. 
And remember, we said from yesterday, we, or the day before yesterday, we saw in the book of Romans, chapter, I think it was three or four, when we talked about Abraham, that Abraham, despite his circumstances, remember that? What were his circumstances? His body was dead. Sarah's womb was barren. They were old. It was humanly beyond impossible for them to have a child. Maybe not for Abraham, but for Sarah. Because my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, birthed his last child when he was 92. Now, how's that possible? Because, yes, because when he was in his 40s, his wife died and he married a girl. Back in those days, they did that. That was 16. And then when he was in his 90s or so, she was in her 40s and they had a kid. And um, so anyway, um, but Abraham, the Bible says it was impossible for him. So anyway, uh, it's crazy. But yeah, I don't even know why. I probably shouldn't even have said that story to you. But. All right, let's go to... Daniel chapter 3. And we know this story that the king calls everybody together. He makes the statue, which is a counterfeit of Daniel chapter 2 statue, correct? And in the end of time, Satan has a counterfeit day of worship that counters the Sabbath worship, correct? And, um, and this is just a prelude to that. And Satan always has a counterfeit, doesn't he? Always has a counterfeit. And so... Notice the way that he persuades everybody to worship this thing. How does he persuade them? Music. How is Satan preparing the world today to receive the mark of the beast? Music and entertainment, isn't he? I mean, that's one of the... If it's not the, the, the greatest method, it's in the top three ways that Satan is conditioning the hearts and minds of people to prepare Music and entertainment, movies, video games, etc. And um, he plays all kinds of music. Now, in my class the other day, over to Manual, I was talking about how um, I was doing a thing on atheism, and I, I can't get into the whole thing, but I'll tell you the punchline, that, that when Moses went up, God was seeking to restore the image of his character to the Israelites at Mount Sinai when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments revealed his character, right? And Satan twisted that and he caused them to dance around the golden calf and do the apostasy, correct? And when Moses came back down, he drew a line on the sand and he, he basically rebuked them. He said, you fools, you know, God would strike you dead for this. But he said, here's a line on the sand. And he said, all those who will be on the Lord's side come over here and the rest, who is not, stay over there. And who came over? The Levites, right? Because they did not participate in that, that, word, that false worship. And so what then did God do with the Levites? He put them in charge of His sanctuary. And He also put them in charge of the music. Didn't He? You catch that point? He said, these people over here, they don't know the kind of music that I'm looking for. And this is not worshipful music for the type of worship that I desire. So therefore, these people here are going to define, they're going to 
uh, be in charge of selecting the type of music that will be played in my camp. Are you with me? So music obviously has played a major role throughout the course of history on the influence of the hearts and minds of humanity, correct? And especially God's people. And so here he's using very influential music to cause the people, to coerce the people to bow down. It makes it easier. And what the music does is the music drowns out the voice of conscience. Because the music goes straight to the limbic system, which feeds the emotion, and it causes it to bypass the frontal lobe. Did you know that? The type of music that um, is worldly music, is it, it bypasses the frontal lobe. That's why classical music is actually good for your brain, because it feeds the frontal lobe and it actually makes you think. The other type of the emotional music makes you feel good for a few minutes, but then it, your brain basically shuts off. Okay, So that's why he's doing this, to numb the conscious, to numb the frontal lobe. and call, I don't know that he knew that at that time, but the devil knew it, and he was the one that impressed it, and they do that. So, verse 8 uh, says, There at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, etc., etc., uh, every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews which we have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, do not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three Hebrews are describing, if it should be so, that the mark of the beast be passed in our day, you and I. They are a parallel to the people of God who will be refusing to receive and accept the mark of the beast. Correct? Yes or no? And so you can imagine the pressure that they will under, and you can believe that you and I will be under the same, if not greater, pressure. Correct? So, reminder, how many Jews or Hebrew boys were there in the realm? No. Well, yes, there were three, but there were many more than three. So, what were the rest of them doing? They were bowing. And I mean, it might even have been that somebody was like, look, boys... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just, you, know, you can imagine that probably some of their own friends were there and they were saying, look, just act like you're tying your shoe or something. Just bend over and strap your sandal and just, and just you know, just do it for a second or you're going to die. And then when they brought them before the king, I don't know if there were more words said here, but I'm sure that somewhere along the line, one of the guards or somebody said to them, look, look at all your friends over there. Those people are Jews. Those people are Hebrews. They're Israelites, and they're doing it. You can still serve your God and do this thing too. You're not really worshiping another God. You're just giving reverence to the king. All right? There's all these things that are going to be brought to their attention to pressure them. What had happened in Daniel chapter 1? They had what? They had purpose in their heart. 
They had given their heart to God. And listen, friends, what it was not, the situation was not that they just stood in the, in the firmness of their own willpower and said, no, I will not. Because they had given their hearts to God, the love of God had so filled their hearts, there was no room for the love of anything else. Are you with me? They could not bow down because their hearts were totally given over to God. They could not. <clears throat> so what happens with the king? Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, furious in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. King Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you would not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up. Now, if you were ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, and well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And I want you to notice this last sentence. And who is the what? God, who will deliver you out of my what? Out of my hands. And I want you to notice this. The king believed himself to be a god. Yes or no? Because he's saying, what other god can deliver you from my hand? I am the almighty god. He was the god of music, the god of history, because he was trying to defy prophecy, the god of worship, the god of life, and the God of death. That's how he viewed himself. He's saying this by his question that no other God can deliver him from their hands. He was the God of that world, essentially. And Satan is the prince of this world, correct? And so virtually it was the voice of Satan speaking through, right? Now notice what happens here. Which one... In doing this, which one of the Ten Commandments were at stake? Hmm? Well, really all of them, right? <laughs> but certainly, um, mainly two. No other gods and idols, right? And really all of them were at stake because all of them have to do with worship, yes? And so they had to choose between God's laws and whose laws? Man's law. I mean, does that sound familiar? Very simple. And, uh, but notice this. Let's keep reading here. Chapter, same chapter, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if what? <clears throat> I think this is, these, are, these three words are three of the most powerful words. I, I once heard a sermon, and the title of the sermon was, But If Not. Amen? And notice this, But If Not... Be it no, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. These three boys were at perfect peace 
with either being the prince, one of the princes of the kingdom of Babylon, because they were, or being thrown into a fire. They were fully content in their relationship with God, and they said, whatever our relationship with God will cost us, the relationship with God is greater than the suffering or the blessing. Or the benefit of being a prince in the kingdom, or the suffering of being thrown into a fire. Our relationship with God is worth either to us. We're not willing to give it up for either one. But if not, amen? Now I want you to think about this. Do you suppose that Daniel and his friends had been memorizing Scripture? What do you think? Yeah. What are some of the things that they probably would have, met, would have memorized? Let's take a look at this. Look with me in Psalm chapter 12. Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12 and verse 6 and 7. Well, let's put, uh, let's actually read a little bit of, let's read previously to this. Let's start in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double tongue they speak. Is that happening in Babylon? Oh, yeah. It's happening today, isn't it? May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The Lord the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Kind of what Nebuchadnezzar was saying, isn't it? Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? Because the poor, the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined, refined in a what? <laughs> in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will what? You will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forevermore. On every side the wicked prowl as violence is exalted among the children of men. So what can you imagine if their minds had gone to that particular psalm or something similar to it, right? They're talking about here, the words are pure words like silver refined in a furnace, and that's where they were about to go. And they had to decide if we're going to allow the Word of God to purify us or we're going to allow the fire of this life to consume us. Which one is it going to be? And they thought about God is like a what? Consuming Fire. Amen? And God is like a consuming fire. And they thought to themselves, we're at the end of this life, at the end of this world, we're going to face the consuming fire of God. We can face the consuming fire of the king and pass through the consuming fire of God, or we can do the opposite. We can, we, we can save ourselves from the king and go unprotected into the consuming fire of God. And they said, if God is a consuming fire then will He not be with us in the fire? And so it was Scripture, as they claimed the promises of God, and they remembered that God's Word is purified in their hearts through the fiery trials of this life, that they're able to say to the king, if you want to throw us in, 
throw us in. It doesn't really matter to us. Our relationship with God means more to us than our earthly life. And when Christ is living within us, we need to not fear any man on this earth. Amen? Amen. And so the king threw them in, and they understood that God's presence was like a consuming fire. And when they were thrown into the fire, they decided they would fear God's fire over, his, over Nebuchadnezzar's fire. Now, when you think about your own life today and the fiery trials that you go through, which fire do you fear more? And when I say fire, I'm not talking about the fire of hell at the end of time. I'm talking about the fire of God's presence. Because if the fire of God's presence is in your heart, then there is no fire, fiery trial in this life that's going to consume you. Amen? That God's going to walk through the midst of the fiery stones, as He says in Isaiah. The water will pass over your head, but it will not overflow you. I'll be with you, says the Lord. Amen? So in any circumstance where we are tempted to compromise, we need to remember the two fires of the Hebrews. Amen? Because I promise you that this trial that they experience is, I could be wrong about this, but it's most likely greater than any trial that you or I have gone through. Amen? Now, did Daniel's friends endure the fire? Yes or no? They saw who in the fire? Jesus was with them. Now I'm just going to summarize the rest because I, I thought we had about 10 minutes and we got two minutes. And the king sees them. Now I want you to take note of this. I want you to take note of this. They're in the fire with Jesus. It is a sim- that is a prelude to the second coming of Jesus. Are you with me? It's a prelude. Because they have the tr- they're surrounded by Babylon in chapter 1. I remember we told you in chapter 2, the whole world's attention is drawn to the prophecies of the Bible. And at the end of time, it will be the same. Chapter 3, you have the mark of the beast and the great test of God's people. And then Jesus returns, correct? So they see Jesus in the fire. They're in the fire with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, He'll be surrounded by angels. But the, the psalm says he's, there's a, a fiery tempest all around Him, right? It's a symbol of the second coming of Christ. But notice this. The men who threw Daniel, or not Daniel, but his friends into the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what happened to them? They died. The wicked will be destroyed. But if you notice, the Bible says that the king... King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, he rises up in haste. He declared to his counsels, counselors, did we not cast three men down in the fire? And they said, yes. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And the fourth is like the son of who? God. Now look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came what? Near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. Why is it that those men died when they got too close to the fire, but Nebuchadnezzar came right down to the door of the furnace and he was not consumed. Why is that? Because he confessed in the previous verse, who? Is the fourth not like the Son of God? And in his heart, he believed. And so when he drew near to the fire of God, he was not consumed. Because he had confessed his belief and his faith 
in the Son of God. How many can say amen today? Amen. So what was the key to them not being destroyed? It was faith. It was giving the heart to God of chapter 1. It was staying connected in chapter 2. But in chapter 3, it was claiming the promises of God's Word in the midst of every trial. And the greatest trial of their life, they remembered the Word of God and it saved their lives. And it will save your life today. Amen? Amen? The experience that they had in those three chapters, can we have also today? Amen? Is there a crisis coming as great or greater than the one they had? Yes, there is. But it's that righteousness by faith, Christ living in you, the hope of glory, that preserves their life and saves their soul. Amen? Amen. How many of you want to have that faith in your hearts today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fiery trials that try us, that prepare us for the greater things that you have for us. Help us not to run from those things, but to embrace them through your grace and by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, today that our hearts would be connected with yours, that our hearts would be given over to you as Daniel and his friends did in chapter 1, that they would be connected to you as in Daniel chapter 2, and that we would be willing to believe that the Word of God can do what it says as they did in chapter 3. We pray today that our hearts and minds would be fully given over to you and your son Jesus. And that's the choice we make just now. We believe it by faith and we trust that the Spirit of God is sealing our hearts in that decision today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.